0: Hey y'all, it's your favorite host and I wanted to just pop in here to say uh, if you're enjoying the show uh, and you'd like to give us some support, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Uh, I've launched the Patreon with a couple of tiers. There's a $3 tier which gives you access to the Discord and you come hang out with uh, me and the other friends inside of that uh, and just kind of talk the show, talk a bunch of different nerd stuff. And then there is a, another tier an eight dollar tier uh, where you can get early access to episodes ad free um, you will also get free access to all uh, micro rpgs that i create in the future yeah so again uh thank you so much for listening to the show um if you'd like to give additional support that's one way to do it another great way to do it is just you know go on to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast subscribe Uh, follow leave a review if you can Um, those things really help gain visibility for the show and it is always greatly appreciated link is in the description thank you so much and back to the episode welcome to the secret nerd podcast where we think everyone should play tabletop rpgs and give you some reasons why With me tonight, I am very excited to talk to the first PhD, I believe, on the show. Um, And yeah, uh, she is a professor, a critter, a um, huge fan of TTRPGs and actual plays, and is looking into uh, how those work and translate. So I'm very excited for this conversation. Uh, Yeah, if you would like to introduce yourself.
1: Yeah. Hi, I'm Dr. Emily Friedman. I'm an associate professor of English at Auburn University in Alabama,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where I teach on book history, digital humanities, the 18th century, and most recently, a whole bunch of courses on both tabletop role-playing games and actual play as a new genre.
0: Yeah. That's so exciting. It's, it's bizarre uh, as well, I'm sure, for you too, of just like, that's the thing that we learn about now Uh, that's a thing that people can you know pick up in a class
1: yeah yeah well and ttrpgs have been studied for a while now um you know there's uh when i came into this space uh partly i was nervous because there is like i'm sitting next to a very large stack of uh game studies Mm -hmm. books both video and analog Mm -hmm. there's a lot of folks um but they're it's been very welcoming. Evan Turner, who's one of the co-founders of Analog Game Journal, folks like that have been really amazing. Um, You know, which, you know, as I grew up in the shadow of Gamergate, uh, (laughs) I don't take that for granted. Yeah. Uh, That, that folks with, you know, I'm a white lady. So like marginalized identity only kind of, and only in spaces like this, but uh, I'm, I'm keenly aware of those kinds of you know, potential risks.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah. And which kind of leads me to like the first question I always ask, like, how did you get into nerd stuff in general anyway?
1: Yeah. So partly it, I I come to it from tradition. Um, mm-hmm. My father is the kind of person who has a copy of the Silmarillion like <laughs> as bath as bathroom reading. Oh, gosh. Um. So yeah, early and often notebook. with <laughs> Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that he has, but it's, it's right <laughs> but it's there yeah. for reference. Um, you know, so I have the kind of first editions of Lord of the Rings on my shelf because they're his. Yeah. Um, I have the memories of like um, the, uh, I swear to God, there's a there was a Dune children's book. And I wow. had it, and I remember the sandworm. No yeah. one else remembers it. I can't find it. Maybe <laughs> I made it in, in my head. But that's a really weird thing to w- make make up in your head.
0: It's like um, a so yeah, Mandela effect thing.
1: <laughs> it might be, but unlikely since this memory has been here for a while. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So my dad was a kind that old school kind of born in the fifties kind of a uh, guy who is very into sci-fi and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then my older brother, who's about seven years older than I am, uh, he and I and my younger sister would play kind of in the golden age of LucasArts adventure games and Sierra okay. um, kind of adventure games. So the fact that Monkey Island is coming back is is a very important moment. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, and so then I... Was in performing arts elementary schools, um, being kind of a theater kid. Yeah. Uh, And uh, then, uh, so that was when I was in school with Beyonce. And then she went to performing arts high school. And I went to this weird little Catholic girls school where I found, like, the emerging anime girls and the Renaissance fair girls and all of the kind of different kind of nerd intersections that I hadn't yet discovered. And we played uh, early vampire. We played a Steve Jackson RPG called mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my initial experience with like the TTRPG space. And then I abandoned it all in college because <laughs> the the vibes of of my particular college it was the the science fiction and fantasy group kind of was also aligned with some pretty sketchy stuff Mm. at my small women's college. So I was like, well, I don't, I'm not part of that. (laughs) Um, Even though like Star Trek Voyager, a mailing list was how I got into college, how I found out about my college, those (laughs) kinds of things. Uh, So yeah, it's been this kind of um, continual evolution. And so this most recent part of my research has been kind of coming back to my roots after, you know, in college, I was like, I'm going to, read as far back in time as possible. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to read forward until I get bored. And then whatever that is, that's going to be what I study.
2: Yeah.
1: And came in thinking I was a Russian lit major. (laughs) That didn't work out. Um, And instead ended up in the 18th century, which for me is like the dawning of all the stuff that we see now. Yeah. We can see the echoes for good and for ill, for violent and for awesome. Yeah. Um, And uh, so, yes. And then I spent a lot of time in there um, hanging on in grad school as a kind of fan artist, um, mm. and, uh, and doing a little bit of that. But then, you know, your job comes in, you fu- you're you lucky <laughs> enough to be one of the people in the great, uh, depression yeah. of our time to get a job. And you're like, ah, I must focus yeah. and be a person. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So why do they do and that and yeah, so that's that's the kind of long-winded origin story.
0: That's awesome. I like how that long-winded origin story had a slip in of uh, went to school with Beyonce. Uh, yes, yes, what, yeah.
1: <laughs> my students, my students call it dropping the bay bomb. Um, yeah. It's kind of like the wait, wait, what?
2: Wait, hang on. Two weeks ago,
1: I had to give a lecture, and I and I'm talking about uh, you know poets who are in the lemonades syllabus, and so I. You Know that's the moment where I'm like, Well, yeah, this is really weird for me, guys. I'm not the departmental expert. Um, this all feels very awkward. My yeah. a, a person I remember only at the age of eight is, is now a person that we study. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so maybe that's what prepared me for thinking about actual play because I already, in theory, have had a contact with massive fame, yeah, and know that it's kind of a weird construct.
0: It, it is, yeah, it's um. It really is. It's, it's kind of bizarre. I think it's like, and two, I think that, you know, the degrees of success, uh, kind of change how that functions too. Um, but yeah, I mean, even like you and I have both interacted with B. Dave Walters, um, who is like beloved in the community. And so he just, you know, for him to be doing an interview is like, uh, yeah, that's a thing I'll do. That's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of a no big deal because he, he knows his stories and he knows like, what he wants to say. Yeah, he's
1: got, he's got his beats. <laughs> yeah. He's got, you know, w- and watching him work with students is amazing. Yeah. Um, he's, and he's universally, as far as I can tell, beloved by yeah. folks, precisely because he kind of opens doors for other folks. Yeah. But it's interesting when I, when I talk to him, I've often said in an interesting kind of way, those early actual play folks who have really blown up, in a, in a very real way, are kind of similar to the kind of position I occupy in academia, which is to say we're a very small percentage. Mm-hmm. We're all in our kind of late 30s and into our 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, we are doing things we could not have imagined our skill set preparing us for a decade yeah. ago.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and we have a certain amount of stability and a certain amount of freedom um, you know, although the ratios of freedom, the ratios of, you know, power and liberty and things like that are kind of a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but it's been very interesting to think about, like, the the stable working actor and the tenured professor have some things that are interesting in common, yeah. um, which has been, I think, one of my ways into thinking about uh, how this is working. And then everybody else who's younger Who's coming into this space is coming into a very different space, is thinking about it as a professional goal. Mm-hmm. And it's a big farm team. You know, it's the minor leagues are very big and very broad. And it's mm-hmm. it's hard to know what's gonna come, you know, both for, you know, folks who are just coming up in academia with all its uncertainties, but also Um, kind of in the world of actual play and how it fits into the kind of creative gig economy.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things to kind of watch because I listen to so many shows. It's got to, like, I lose count, but it's got to be like between 15 and 20, between podcasts and like stream slash VODs. And it is interesting to see you have like these um, kind of like OG shows that have been around for like five to seven years that are, you know going super strong obviously like critical role uh nad pod um like glass can and things like that like people who have gained success over this time where now we're looking at and we're like how come they're rich and i'm not um it's because they've been doing this for a while um and they found success in a time when there really wasn't a lot of people and now what i'm really fascinated by is like okay you have i don't know a thousand to two thousand new actual plays out there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right it's bonkers it's bonkers
1: it's bonkers
0: and at some point soon i would assume the cream is going to start rising to the top right but there's still new shows being made as well like my friend lexi mcqueen just is making a show about um hbcu version of strixhaven uh, yes
1: i am so i'm so excited for that i'm so excited um, for that too that i'm cast so is so just, excited yeah I've been keeping a particular track of things that are set in higher ed for yeah. maybe a new future class, and I'm like, yes, this is what I want. Yeah. And I have a friend, my my closest collaborator on this game stuff is is Dr. Emily Kugler at Howard. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, this is a <laughs> thing that your students will probably be super maybe interested in. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing. Like the target demographic is people my students' age, but it's being produced by people my age, and yeah. I mean, and younger, obviously, right. but like. Yeah.
0: But for the yeah, so it's kind of like this mix of like I don't know. I think we're probably like three generations deep now um, (laughs) of 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 folks in the TTRPG space, Um, and it's like yeah, and so we're at this stage where this stuff is being made, and it's so fascinating to see like what's gonna hit, Um, and it's probably gonna be quite a lot more because these older shows and old and people who have been doing it for a long time have opened the door um, for a lot of folks to come in and you know step up um, and try to like do stuff, but. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see.
1: Well, you know, so in my other the other hat that I wear, because I have like eight, eight of them at this <laughs> yeah. point, because this is what happens um when you're kind of at what we call mid-career in academia. Um, your your projects never die. They just kind of <laughs> go on without Experiment. you. Yeah. Um, and occasionally you hop in. Um, but one of the other things I study that I think is really closely tied to this is never published manuscript fiction so stuff that people wrote by hand and circulated in small groups yeah and b-day talks about you know he likes to quote you know the the thousand loyal fan concept the idea that you don't have to have a huge following to kind of have something viable depending on what you want to do yeah right and i think that's the interesting thing is gonna and this is the thing i don't think anybody has the answer to is like how many people are going to do that transition from this is a thing I do, but I'm also a game designer or I'm also an editor or I also have a day job, um, or I'm a different kind of actor, like somebody like London, Uh you know, uh, and how many folks, um, are, you know, and, and how, and how is it going to kind of shake out that way? And I think that part of it is we're seeing a lot of what, also is happening in podcasting more broadly, right? Those kinds of coalitions, mm-hmm. right? Satine Phoenix's is collective. Um, Dimension 20 kind of operates a little bit like a collective. Yeah. Um, NADPOD is part of, you know, HeadGum. Yeah. Um, that you, you see a lot of kind of people realizing that it's not just the community of the people at the table for the show they want to do. If they really want to have a kind of longevity, um, or make this kind of a more viable business. it's you're you're creating almost a network. We're almost yeah. seeing the replication of networks. Um, and as someone who's trying to write about this and describe it for the public and what's happening, it's yeah. been really interesting to think about, like what's the taxonomy here? And how do you create a descriptive taxonomy of what different actual plays are trying to do that doesn't feel derogatory? yeah, right? Um, You know, because I think there's a whole bunch of actual plays that exist, you know, for little miniature runs Mm -hmm. that do the thing that they want to do that are getting, you know, funding from, you know, one of the from different kind of avenues in the TTRPG space. And those have their place and they're doing a particular kind of function. And that's, uh, you know, I remember when Abria came to my class and she was like, the future is short the future yeah. is edited the future is tight mm-hmm. and i don't think she's wrong i think yeah you're not going you're not going to get another critical role critical role is super weird critical role may not be able to pull off critical role for much longer they have yeah. become the the platonic ideal of what you know folks have called the transmedia phenomenon right mm-hmm. like so that there's many ways in the actual play is one option but there's increasingly you know they write books intended for people who have never watch the show there the animated series which did extremely well all those sorts of things yeah and i don't know that we're gonna see a whole lot of other breakouts in that way but maybe we will i think critical role is thinking that some people will be able to follow in their footsteps um you know and certainly they're creating a space where more people can come in i think i think that's their goal with campaign three and the way that they're doing casting but, yeah, lots of unknowns this early on, yeah, fun to be a historian ten <laughs> years in,
0: yeah, seriously it's uh it's so interesting to see, and I think, like, for sure, I mean, I love long shows if I get in at the right time, right, right, like yep, it'll be fun to talk to you about critical role because you are <laughs> the most prolific fan of critical role that i that I've met, um
1: which is so weird because I would not define myself as a critter,
0: you. Um, Live tweet I know. the episode. I know. I don't know. How else I know. You describe that.
1: Well, maybe we need I mean, to a, put, put, a, like. put a button. Put a pin in it. But yeah. I think that I think that uh, the the notion of fan is a really fraught one yes. um, for anything. And I think that um, one of the interesting places about my position in this space mm-hmm. uh, has been. Henry Jenkins had coined the idea of the Aca fan, the the idea that, you know, that was fairly new at the time in the kind of 80s and into the 90s of an academic who is also a fan and is studying other fans and their fan work. Yeah. And I increasingly, uh, you know, because I have moved from thinking about fan work, which is ably covered by any number of other people, I've... Helped co-create uh, a crowdsourced bibliography that's officially known as CritRole Bib, but is a bibliography of actual play studies more generally. So I can tell you, it's a thriving field of folks who are doing the, the study of things like fan fiction and fan art and fan work and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What we don't have is people talking about craft. Um, with creators and thinking about the making of things and I'm a big historian so that's my and I'm a performance studies person so that's my jam yeah and so it's interesting to figure out how much am I a fan and how much am I something else mm-hmm. and maybe that's like disingenuous of me but <laughs> I think that um I don't know a lot of my work um, especially because my other, the other book that I'm working on is trying to think about the historical roots of fan fiction. So, yeah. and one of the things I've argued is we have to figure out what a fan is. Like, what yeah. are the essential qualities? We know what a 20th and 21st century fan is and what they do and how they behave. What was? Ha- how do we have a comparison for before 1800? Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about like, what is a fan? Am I a fan? I don't know because I'm an 18th centuryist. You have to understand In the 18th century, um, the the British notion of enthusiasm, which we think of as a positive thing, right? Mm -hmm. And a fan is enthusiastic. That got beaten out of me by being an 18th centuryist. (laughs) I am very skeptical about enthusiasm, about because and because the 18th century mindset was, it will take you over, Mm -hmm. it will it will carry you away to a place that you don't intend to go. Um, And the the downside of that is you know, I, I'm very skeptical of my own emotional response. Um, but also the the bonus is it gives me a certain amount of space to kind of look at myself looking. And I think that's actually what the live tweeting, uh, and I live tweet two shows, uh, Critical mm. Role and Kolok, which is yeah. Hyper RPG's super duper indie David Lynchian um, uh, amazing show. Highly recommend. Yeah, And I do it in part... Because uh, it, it's a note-taking thing for me, um, and it's uh, also kind of to get a log of my own response. So I'm actually um, kind of d- almost setting my own reaction at a distance when yeah. I'm doing it, uh, which I think is, you know, we'll see. I mean, but it's it's important to me, especially since my one of my goals in this in this space and doing this work is to be able to meet creators. In the position of peer rather than fan,
2: yeah,
1: um you know, as someone who is who can acknowledge their the quality of their work and can talk thoughtfully about it, and it's not as immersed in, you know, the TtRPG actual play space is so rooted in the parasocial that it's really, really tricky, and it's something that I think about a lot. It's yeah. like, where's that line? Um and how do I avoid crossing it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think I yeah, I definitely think when you you're talking about that like it you I can see the rational process, right? A good example of this is like uh the recent controversy around campaign 3 and their uh campaign trailer um and having like fanatic fans reacting one way and having mm-hmm. you know rational fans reacting another way of being like, you know, we're not agreeing on how this should be done and, and how this should be I mean, how this should be talked about. And so I think, yeah, I, I think that you could still be a fan and be rational about something for sure. Um <laughs> and maybe just, you know, yeah, but there is a line. There for sure is a line of like, okay, you've become, you know, a super fan or a fanatic, the full word. Well, right? and that's
1: the interesting thing, right? Like, so when I was you know, long ago and far away when J.K. Rowling hadn't shown her entire ass to the world, <laughs> right. I was a fan artist in the Harry Potter fandom. And yeah. so, and a lot of us who are working in this space, yeah, you know, in different kinds of ways, uh like Flourish Klink and Heidi Tandy. Uh, Flourish Klink is um uh, went and got a a degree in fan studies more or less and is a consultant to big name companies for how to deal with fan engagement. Yeah. Heidi Tandy is um, one of the big intellectual property lawyers who advises um, archive of our own among others. When we were coming up, there was this notion of the big name fan, mm. right? And the big name fan was famous to other fans. And what's fascinating to me about the TTRPG space is when you become a big name fan, you're a, you become a creator too. Yeah. You've got Omega Jones, you've mm. got uh Jenny D there. They're, fans no question and yeah. in a different world and time we might call them big name fans but what they are is content creators who are also in the space also performing in the space doing the same kind of work um you know and has and Jenny D just was on the critical role set for yeah. the anniversary yeah. right so what's fascinating to me is the way in which there's this bleed not only the kind of bleed that i've been talking about in terms of like you know how much am I a fan and how much am I something else? Yeah. But also the capacity for um, fan creatives, and most fans are these pointer creatives, to kind of jump into these kinds of relationships. You know, the fan artists in Critical Role and in a lot of other fandoms, you know, can become people who are commissioned by the show to do official art.
2: Right. uh,
1: You know, those sorts of things. Uh, fan fiction, not so much. They got left behind because they're always yeah. left behind. But yeah. but a lot of other fan creators, you know, how many of the animators on the uh, Legend of Vox Machina identify as critters? Right. That was kind of part of the selling point. And I find that really fascinating because that's something new. And that's partly social media. That's partly some the, the nature of the fact that all of this is born digital online media. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't have answers for this. I just find it like this fascinating phenomenon, um, where there's a mo- there's a kind of social mobility of fame um, that's here, and even the most famous people are not like. Household name, famous. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. they're famous to us. To they're famous us, to us, hundreds yeah, of our... thousands. They're famous to millions of people. But in the grand scheme of you know our giant globe, right? Um, you know they're not BTS.
0: Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think on a very obviously like super super smaller scale, I've I've realized that myself. In that, uh, I had somebody reach out to me recently. And they were like, hey, like, what's the application process to be on your show? And I was like, there's no application process. If I <laughs> want you on my show, then I will reach out to you. But like, I will happily check out your stuff and see. And if it's something that I am interested in. But that one thing that I have done is like people who have been fans without like me going to them, just like people who are just like, hey, like, I love what you do. Um, a lot of times I'll reach out to them and be like, well, well let's talk. Like, I'm happy to engage with you. Um, because I already know that you are enjoying it. Um, because I mean, I've had multiple people on the show, obviously now where this is episode 49. Uh, Ooh. yeah. And, and yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, I have people on who, after we talk, like we become friends and they listen to the show, but a lot of times they're like, I've never listened to the show yet. And I'm like, that's fine. We can still have a conversation. Um, so it's always exciting if somebody's like randomly, like I love this. And I'm like, Oh, we should talk
1: yeah. <laughs> this is yeah, cool.
0: um yeah, I so- like
1: your stuff. I like your stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I wrote a I wrote a a piece for a small literary magazine called The Rambling, which is all about kind of making connections between the eighteenth century and today. and I was like, hey, can I want to write for the Valentine's issue and I want to write about critical role and I mm-hmm. want to kind of write about friendship mm-hmm. and that essay ends with. Um, The moment that Abria comes to my class and we're on Zoom. So the same exchange we're having right here, like it's I'm in the same chair uh, with the same background and and this kind of, you know, moment of the both of us going, how the fuck did we get here? Like, you're amazing. No, you're amazing. No, you have a cool ass job. No, you have a cool ass job. Like, and it's just like, oh, right. We're all people, and you're in your garage, and I'm in my like yeah. home office, and this is this is what it is, like you know, when you strip everything down, yeah. um, which is kind of amazing. And I love the fact that we've, you know, through things like these kinds of long form podcasts mm-hmm. and um through kind of charity streams and things like that, we do have the ability to like spend some time together in yeah. this kind of weird virtual way. Um, which makes it all the the parasocial thing even blurrier, right? I yeah. guess the, the theme of this this conversation is like everything is blurry, everything <laughs> is weird, yeah. right? It's like um, in academia, it's very common to be like, "Ah, yes, you are my friend. I see you once a year at a conference, or I may have never actually met you, right? Yeah. Like we're on a we're on Twitter and we believe in the same thing and we're in the same job, and that's it." Yeah. And the TTRPG space. That's a big danger, right? Because like, there's so much more performance going on, and you know, um, actual players and folks like that are much better performers than awkward academics. Like, academics are pretty much just themselves on Twitter
2: (laughs) because
1: we 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 don't know how to do anything else. Um, But yeah, so it's it's a really interesting like kind of headspace shift. I, I compare it to the ways in which. When I'm in the English department here at Auburn, I'm Dr. Friedman. Mm-hmm. All of my colleagues are Dr. So and so. Um, anybody who says, call me Emily is a total asshole who's basically under it's usually a white dude, <laughs> undercutting the authority of their female and colleagues of color. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a power move to say, I, I reject the power that I have just by virtue of who I am. Yeah. And so I carry that over into the art department, into the theater department. And that doesn't play because not everybody has the same kind of degree. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of egalitarian sense of we're all in this together doing the work. And so as soon as I step into that space, I'm Emily. Yeah. And so Twitter is super weird, right? Like I have as my title, you know. I have my Dr. Friedman thing,
2: yeah.
1: um, because in solidarity with you know the my many colleagues who also need to use that title in order to kind of you know get the get the ball rolling. Yeah, but it's super weird when people DM me like you know and. You know, they're, you know, a streamer who I think of as super cool and has like hundreds of thousands of followers is like, hey, doc. And I'm like, why are you calling me doc? I'm just a person. We're the same age. We just do different jobs. Yeah. I don't even know. Uh, but yeah, so it's and Twitter is this kind of flattening space where, you know, you've got all these different kinds of spheres that sometimes interact Mm -hmm. and then it gets really messy when the when the kind of norms of one collective brush up against the norms of another yeah um in in trippy trippy ways
0: yeah i mean that's a good point like i've seen quite a few people over the past like six months get outed on twitter as like being really fucking awful people um, which is good, like they should be added, of course, for that, sure um, sure, but its you know it's to your useful point of, information yes, yeah, absolutely, but to your point of just like the fact that the space is filled with people who are performers, and it's so much easier to to edit a Twitter message uh to sound a certain way to fit a certain uh tone than it is to okay. constantly lie and project. Yourself in a deceptive way in an actual like conversation with right. people, and so yeah, it's it's uh, um, uh, it is kind of a scary thing. And I mean, I, I am uh, notoriously a huge hater of Twitter, um, so people aren't surprised <laughs> by that. But like, I in the same sense, I'm just like, I don't really use it a lot um, because I don't. I find it difficult in that same sense of like people. You know, one I use my podcast profile, sure, because um, I refuse to get my own, and uh, and so there's like a certain expectation of like what content comes out of a podcast profile, um, and then also I just sometimes I will write personal stuff and people will just say something stupid, like not even like terrible, but just like stupid, and I'm like, ah, I don't, nope, not doing this anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, so that's the interesting thing, right? So I've had Twitter, this Twitter account I have had for. Thirteen years, something mm. ridiculous, like that, yeah. um, which is as long as I've been at my job, which is also weird, <laughs> yeah, um, so the entire time I've had it, uh I have been very like cognizant of the fact that like I'm an academic in public, mm-hmm. and so, in the same way that when I run into students in the before times in the yoga class, it's like. I am me, but I also realize that I project a very different thing to the student who sees me. I always have a conversation with my graduate students like, there's a moment in your degree program, it will come, where I won't be me anymore. I'm going to be the avatar for all of your anxieties (laughs) while you're finishing up. And that's okay. And that's normal. Um, And I don't take it personally because that's just how anxiety works. Yeah. And in the and so it's interesting because it's I think code switching is a really useful uh, way of thinking about it, and decorum is a useful way of thinking about it. I'm very you know I drop I I drop f bombs all over the place on Twitter, and I obviously like weave together different parts of my life. But there are certainly things that are not on my Twitter that you know you know it's this the the best wisdom ever is say, what what do you say for the group chat right um and also you know even in terms of internet spaces you know i have i have 3 instagrams at this point there's like two pu- two public facing ones critical prof for the role playing game stuff and manuscript fiction for the unpublished book history stuff yeah. and then there's the one that's just like actual people i know um right. who and my friends and family um and it's nothing is scandalous if if someone got access to it but <laughs> yeah. it's definitely the kind of that's my home as opposed to i think about a lot of these other spaces as you're coming into my home office or you're coming into my my work office which are filled with you know so- signs of me and different things about me that i think are cool and worthy of engagement but yeah, at a certain point, you kind of kind of step back and it's, it's interesting. So for academics, um, Twitter starts to get weird at about 5,000 followers and yeah. I, and for different parts of Twitter, that number is different. Yeah, um, And that's the, and that's the moment at which you start to realize that you could start getting reactions that you don't expect, right? right. Like, because you're, you're start, you're starting to not be a person. And this week is particularly, um, I'm on edge uh, as I think about you know what am I going to post and like and retweet, because a group of us have written a a group letter to Oxford University Press because of the um kind of gender critical book that's coming out that makes us very worried about the peer review process and we want to know more about the peer review process. so we haven't called for the book to be banned we haven't said anything along those lines, and we and our names are not public on the letter. the letter is public, but who assigned it is not. Um, and we had a big discussion about whether, what we would do. And we all realized we were going to have a really bad day, really bad week, really bad month, potentially not only on Twitter. Like, it's not like, oh, you can turn off your phone and walk away. My address is public because I'm a public servant. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a state employee. People know where my office is. People know how to call my boss. One of my colleagues last year was fired before even getting hired or his contract was bought out yeah. because, of, uh, because of Twitter. Mm-hmm. and so I've been aware for a very long time thanks to people like Dorothy Kim and, and folks you know who have been very publicly critical of say you know the white supremacy in our mm-hmm. profession and things yeah. like that and that and that can lead to some real problems. so it's like on the one hand it's like my, there are things I could say as an academic that will lead me to have a bad day yeah. like, month forever um and also there are things you know in the kind of rpg space i'm shocked i haven't pissed anybody off this point, quite <laughs> frankly i i i need to touch all the wood in right front of me yeah because uh it's it's surprising to me honestly because i i don't think i filter a whole lot um yeah. i think i figure out how to say things um I wouldn't say I'm perfect or a model, but right. so far I have not yet had a bad day on, and I have not been the main character on Twitter, which I, that's all I want. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't cultivate followers. Um, I block as many people as I let follow me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, you know, and, uh, and I've been trained to do that by people who are wiser and more public than me, Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, it's the, the joys of being online right
0: Right, yeah yeah i definitely have blocked some people i'm like i don't know if this person will ever even look my direction but uh i know you're not a good person so i'm just gonna block you um
1: i don't often block humans yeah mostly it's 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 do you look like you're a bot Mm, Um, yeah that well that makes sense yeah 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 um (laughs) i haven't yet gone to full like block like auto blocker kind of situations um, Cause I don't get that many new followers at any given time. Yeah. Uh, but I've, I've seen, you know, other folks I know in this space who've had to do it. Yeah. It's been interesting to have these kinds of conversations about internet safety with, with different folks when we're talking about actual play and like, you know, the level of fame and, and all yeah. that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you powerlift too. Am I correct?
1: I do. Yeah. I I, in fact, say, I did today.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna say, yeah, I mean, if if people wanna see me uh deadlift five hundred and fifteen pounds five years ago, you can become friends with me for real and then follow me on Instagram. Uh but yes. I don't I only have like forty people on there. Um but yeah, it's yeah. uh that's no.
1: exciting. Yeah, my um my my big lift, which is nowhere near that and probably never will be. Well, yeah. Um I probably, but it I probably, was my. <laughs> also true it's like every time i can't i'm i love when b dave posts his lifting numbers and then i despair very briefly because yeah. i'm like oh and then i remember he's like you know got two Six, and a half eight. feet on me yeah. And yeah, he's, yeah he's 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 a he's a, he's i'm i am small i am a small bean
0: yeah.
1: um and i'm old right like or you know i for in terms of stats and things like yeah. that
0: for a lifter um, i guess i am <laughs>
1: But yeah, no, my my coach is literally ha- almost just about half my age, yeah. and he's like, you know, you could compete, you know, you could, and I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. we'll see when that's safe again. You know, do you know my um, tendons
0: hurt? Like, uh, I don't, <laughs> what do you mean I can compete?
1: No, no, I mean that's the thing. I, I have I've I've been um really fortunate to kind of again touch wood. Um, yeah. I think because I'm extremely cautious, yeah. uh, and that's so. Good. Uh, it's it hasn't it hasn't taken its toll, luckily, yeah. uh, but it's it's super fun and it's like the thing that gets me out of my head yeah. and moving. That is, uh, you know, sometimes the numbers matter, but most of the time it's just like that. I have put in, you know, the the work, and I feel like that is a thing that has is very satisfying in a in a profession where there's so many things, especially right now, that mm. are that take a really long time you can't kind of quantify that you can't necessarily even see what the forward momentum is at any given time to be able to be like, ah, yes, I put picked up a very heavy bar and I put it down again and I did yeah. it like six times today. Yeah. I'm going to call it good. I'm
0: gonna call, it, Yeah. I love it. I, I think like one of the cool things, and I've, I've talked about this before, but like for me as a nerd to be able to be like, yeah, my strength scores definitely over 10, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like that's a cool thing, and to just not like because you see so many people who are just like, oh, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, watch all the Marvel movies or like read comic books or whatever, and it's like I wish I could look like that, and it's like, I mean, you you can right to an extent, obviously, like some of it is b- way blown out of proportion. You need, you need steroids to get to that. Uh, oh, for real level, but you can still have like a really action figure like physique. Um, if you put the work in, it's just hard and it takes time.
1: You know, it's funny because, um, one of the things as I've come back to powerlifting, cause you know, we took the the COVID, the pandemic break mm-hmm. and I still lift with a mask, yeah. um, for those that might be curious, um, in a basically empty room, but, right. you know, we're, there are small people in my life. Uh, my nibblings yeah. are uh, under the age of five. So we're, yeah. we're very careful, but, uh, but no, but it's, it's been interesting the relationship to um to my body has really changed and mm. and in the sense that um my instagram is full of like people who are who are competitive power lifters, who are women yeah. and if you look at most of them they don't look jacked right they're, yeah. they're like fitness modeling requires mm. a, a so much deprivation and so much yeah um kind of you know Extreme manipulation of the body, um, and powerlifting that just doesn't work. You know, you eat or you don't lift, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, while there are some aesthetic changes that have been like, oh, that's that's cool, uh, which I will probably not specify (laughs) on this podcast, but but there are others where it's like, ah, yes, like I, this is not an ideal body by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm cool with that, and I will wear my you know short shorts and my lifting top with the grippies on the back. And so I shrink wrapped and I'm a little roly-poly person. Um I just have a better waist. Uh and 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 go about my day. And knowing that like my body can do things that I want it to do. And yeah. that's what's important. Yeah. Um, which uh I didn't always feel like when I was like a long like a longer distance, very slow runner, for example. Yeah. Um so sure. yeah it's been it's been very interesting. And I don't know how much of that is you know, I've, I've passed 40 or, and how much of it is like, oh, I have this new sport that, you know, requires that I treat my body well and, uh, and, and, and care less about what it looks like.
0: Yeah. I mean, as much as I hate to say it, like, well, I don't hate to say it about powerlifting, but as much as I hate to say about CrossFit, the two of them, I think have done, I know they've done a lot for, I, I think a lot for, um, changing how we look at, women's bodies in the sense of like Mm -hmm. what it means for a woman to be strong and like, um, kind of normalizing that. Um, especially, but CrossFit especially, I think because it was just, it became so popular. Um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know, you have these women walking around with like giant traps and like huge deltoids and like thick muscular legs. And, um, yeah. And it just became like, yeah, and this is now a normal thing. So, uh, obviously there are shitty people out there in the world who aren't over it. Oh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, a lot of that stuff, like as it becomes more normalized, it's, I think that's only for the better. Um, even though CrossFit sucks.
1: Yeah, no, it's a weird <laughs> cult.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, and uh, uh, we kind of made it a long way, but I am curious, you mentioned a few different games, um, yeah. which was the first game, The which was the first TTRPG you got to play?
1: First TTRPG Vampire. Vampire, that's um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, and LARP. Um, oh, wow. Because, yeah, I mean, like I said, my friends in high school, because there was a there was a boy's school and a girl's school right across the street, and um, so my friend group was kind of both of them, and I have vivid memories of being in my friend Dia's backyard, um, and, you know, you had Sean, who had, like, stripped off his shirt and, like, had, like, some weird sort. Was it a sword? Was it a fake (laughs) sword? I I don't remember. Um, Dia's daggers were real um, and were from her dad, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and then my friends who were like, you know, in the high school Renaissance triple trio that would sing at the Texas Renaissance Festival, you know, would be like doing their swoony thing. I don't know that we ever actually told a story, but the aesthetic was 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 perfect. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and from there I got super excited about um Steve Jackson games, which is local to Texas. I yeah. mean, obviously it's bigger than that, but mm-hmm. um, you know, we were very aware of it uh in this kind of mid to late nineties moment. And so behind me are a whole bunch of like I've never played tune but I own it. Yeah. Um and we got because we were at a Catholic school, I was like, let's play In Nomine, uh, where you play angels and demons and the humans in between and it's big and cosmic and my friend who uh was was and is a very devout Catholic and the rest of us some of <laughs> yeah. us were Catholic, some of us were not. Yeah. Um but she strangely got really into it um which i think uh was was kind of amazing yeah and so we had a little bit more success with that as a kind of role-playing game i was the worst early you know storyteller game master dungeon you know i my uh dm and pc packs knew everything and was <laughs> you know shiny and bald and glowing and blue and it was real yeah. pain in the ass
2: yeah uh,
1: but yeah, it's it was super fun, and uh, I think like a lot of people who are growing up in the '90s, right, is like Dungeons and Dragons might have existed as a concept. Like for me, yeah. it was a game that my older cousins played that they wouldn't let me play. Yeah, um, when I was younger, um, but it was the it was the 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 moment of White Wolf and the moment of these other games that had kind of that were ha- taking center stage in interesting yeah. kinds of ways. And so D&D didn't come until I was here at Auburn.
0: Okay. And that was uh was that 5th edition that she first got to Yeah, choose it was yeah.
1: The, like the first year of 5th edition, so Okay. Um my I was at a party uh at one of my colleagues' house, uh who's in the history department. So all the historians were there. Yeah. And they'd been playing uh 3.5, I think, for a couple of years and a couple of other things, kind of catches catch can. And uh, they were talking about setting up a fifth edition game. Yeah. And I overheard them at this party, as you do. And I right. did the thing that I do, which is I went up to my sweet, small, mild-mannered friend uh, who grew up, you know, going to the same friendly local game store as Dave Arninson. And I said, well, can I come? <laughs> and they were like, "Like, why are, you not, why are you inviting literally every man at this party, but not <laughs> yeah. me? And, uh, and he was like, I, I didn't know you be interested like he could not imagine because of like the the way that he had grown up he could not imagine a woman willingly playing dungeons and dragons um and now i'm like his you know backup dm i run it when he you know when the children become too much and he needs a break uh I'll, i'll run a side quest kind of deal and half the table now almost is is women Wow, that's um, awesome. As we've kind of progressed, um, yeah. because we hired more junior colleagues who, you know, the medievalist who played, you know, while she was in college, yeah. and you know, she's she's just that much younger than me that she, that 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 was possible, yeah. um, you know, in in interesting kinds of ways. Um, she also went to an engineering school, which I think also explains it but yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it we, so we so we had so I was the first person the first woman at the table who who'd played RPGs but not DD and then our subsequent women have pl- had played our uh, D but had not played with us yeah. so it's been very interesting
0: that's awesome and we're you, a ta- yeah we're a table say, about 10 yeah that's all that's huge I
1: you have to, when you have a bunch of, I call it D and D and dads. Yeah. And so on any, we, our quorum is six players. Okay. So a lot of the time we're not going to have a full complement of people.
0: Yeah. That's uh, I am such a, like, I just love my small table. Um, our mm. home game is three people. And I'm like, I could probably do a fourth, uh, five and six is like, Ooh, that's pushing it. And it really isn't so, that like, hard, but it's just like, I just really enjoy just having a small group.
1: Oh, it's super different. I mean, so the first table I ever ran was for a group of 18th centuryists at our 18th century conference um, in the before times. And that was 17 people.
0: Holy shit. Uh
1: yeah. I mean, it's 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 comical at that point, yeah. right? Like it's combat is is only vaguely a concept at that point. Yeah. Um, but that was the first and only homebrew I've ever done where I created I have a video about this on my YouTube channel. Um, I took the digital artifacts of um, Horace Walpole's kind of neo-Gothic built in the 18th century, designed to look like a medieval uh, house or castle. Um, But the the floor plan still exists. The photos, the place still exists. So there's really high quality photos all over the internet. There's a map of the thing that you can put on a grid and Mm -hmm. all of the stuff, there was a catalog and there's photographs of the stuff and where the stuff was in the house, Mm -hmm. turn it all into magic items and, Boom! You've got something that will amuse 18th centuryists who don't know what the heck they're doing. Yeah, Uh, but that has winnowed down to a table of uh, six players now that we play. We play every other week during the pandemic. Yeah. Um. So that's the game that I run regularly, and then my home game, the home game that I attend, and then like the experimental RPG group that meets on one group that meets on Wednesday. That's about five people, and one group that meets on Sunday that or Saturday that in the brunch hour. That's uh, a little bit of board games. Uh, we're the that's the group that we played Brindlewood Bay, um, uh, and and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's <laughs> it, you, the the pandemic has facilitated a lot of this, right?
0: Yeah, it really has. I mean, it's it it's always weird to say like the positive things that the pandemic brought about, but I mean there there have been some. So.
1: I would not have been doing any of this. I would not have the mic I have. Right. I would not have the setup I have. Um, any of the things. And I certainly wouldn't be kind of doing the work that I do, both teaching and uh, researching, mm. if the pandemic hadn't completely derailed archival study, yeah. but also made it so that, you know, the internet is a real place where most of us are are, are living at the moment, as opposed to, you know, the highly online people. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and i mean when it comes to your class like what is the um i guess what are the things that you're able to teach now with like this new sort of medium of of storytelling
1: yeah so uh le- the first time i taught it i was sitting down with our uh kind of undergraduate studies guy uh, mm-hmm. my colleague who, uh, Craig Bertolette, who we were looking at the course numbers and what I might teach. And there's a course on, uh, his, on technology, literacy, and culture. Um, and that's a kind of big umbrella category. And, yeah, and he, and I had just, uh, finished the critical role article and it had gotten published. Like I wrote that thing in 2018. Oh, wow. Uh, and so this was, mm, I think we were, it was 2019 when we were like having this conversation about what I was going to be teaching and, Uh, the years to come and he's like well why not a game class that would probably do really well I'm like oh yeah I guess I guess I do have some expertise and I have the authority that comes from having just published on it and so I'm a narratologist I study how narratives are structured and so it's Mm. like okay this the way we do this is we say we call it how games tell stories yeah and that's been kind of the heart of it ever since and that's been the heart of everything is my ability to say Look, I'm not the biggest RPG historian. That's probably John Peterson, right? Mm. I'm not a game designer. Uh, I'm not um, an artist, uh, but in in, the, in those kinds of ways. Yeah. But I know how to think about narrative levels. I know how to think about adaptation. I know how to think about the history of production and technology and how that fits in. Yeah. And so... What I created in this first go round last fall was a class that says, OK, let's play these things to understand them, to think about how their narratives are structured, and let's think about them as, as potential works of art, which is a contentious idea. Hmm. Um and let's you and actual play came in in part because that is unquestionably a performance and an art form and a thing yeah. that, and also a really easy way for students who have never n- almost 75% of the students who took it last time were education majors who signed up for the class because it fulfilled a diversity requirement but I did not <laughs> know the class I didn't know the class number came with that but yeah. okay yeah. um so what what ended up happening was oh i'm not just teaching to the st- to the students who are like active members of the tabletop club although they're also in the room yeah. i have to figure out a way in for students who have no idea about any of this yeah so you know you do a little for of alex robert's for the queen to get things started and and then you also say hey you can watch people play these things uh to get a handle on them and so st- I had students teach themselves on their own time, good society by watching uh, because they were excited about the idea of a Jane Austen RPG. And they're like, Mm. okay, and we can watch it and we can see how it's done. And then they had high tea and they played it and it was beautiful. (laughs) It was amazing. They did the same thing for Brindlewood Bay. And I didn't teach those. Uh, I was teaching other stuff. Uh, It was interesting. We were doing a lot of secondary reading in uh, RPG studies, which, it'll be interesting to see how much of that I continue to include. Yeah. One of the challenges has been is that analog game studies, even video, some video game studies presumes that your frame of reference is D and and yeah. I love DD. I play it a lot. Uh, but I wanted to figure out how do I, can I make a class where we never talk about D and And the answer is as far as I can tell, no. Um, but can we, can we put it off just long enough so that students can see that there's a world of these games outside of D and D and that's kind of where I've, I've landed at the moment. Um, So in the fall, I've got an honors research seminar. So 15 students who will work with me on getting tangible information about actual play. We're going to try to create the IMDB of, of actual plays and things like that. We're going to create a network analysis and, and all that. And then a graduate course that's thinking is going back to that adaptation question that uh, Jane Austen and the 18th century, how has it been kind of adapted in game form? And one of the things that I've been arguing and Emily Kugler and I have been arguing in our work is all these questions of representation, like the Bridgerton problem, right? How do you talk about race? How do you talk about queerness? How How do you do that and also set it in the 18th century? games have been trying to figure that out for over a decade mark Diaz Truman um, yeah. you know very famously grappled with the designers of good society about how that game uh talks about race mm-hmm. um, and and they didn't get to a conclusion that was you know that that in, they never agreed on anything but it's a super interesting case study to put in front of my colleagues and my students as this is the debates that people are having now, if we'd only been paying attention to games, we we could have seen this coming from yeah. a mile away.
0: Well, even, I mean, people are still struggling with diversity in a vaguely medieval fantasy setting. So,
1: Yeah, for real. It, it,
0: you know, it's, it's kind of bizarre. And, he, and the game companies are still sometimes struggling to make those changes. I mean, D&D's changes have been very, very recent. Paizo has yep. been making changes that are also pretty recent. Uh, but to a larger scale, I think, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in terms of what they're providing. But I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to see how that is all working out. Um, but it's also cool because there's now more diverse game developers and designers who are creating stuff um, and not waiting for D&D. Yes. Um, but you, you said a couple of things and I and I want to ask you. So uh, <laughs> one, you said, well, first I'll say this. Is there a game... Is there a an actual play that you recommend to your students to watch? Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, in the pl- in the previous class, um, I had students watch because uh, Amy Carrero and Abria Iyengar invited them to my themselves to my class, yeah. And because um, the Byroden episode of Exandria Unlimited is so very clearly steeped in Southern culture. Hmm. Um, that, that was on the list. Um, I had several students who already had experience with the adventure zone. Um, we didn't actually listen to the adventure zone, but there were, there was someone in the room saying, I love the adventure zone and converted some folks. Um, we, uh, watched, um, some, of B Dave's work. Um I kind of gave students a choice in, in that. So anything from like, you know, his work on LA by night, which I greatly enjoy and yeah. I think is uh one of the I have a sticky note of the small pieces that I'm I'm writing up at the moment. And one of them is I is basically the pitches yeah. I never knew I could love Los Angeles until I heard Jason Carl talk about Los Angeles and LA by Night. Yeah, right? um, such a great. But story also, B Dave's uh, Level Twenty stuff for world builders is a yeah. is a favorite of mine, and so that's something that gets point I point to students to. Um, but there's a huge I made a huge list every week of places where, where students could watch stuff. And so the way that the class was structured is what, what we call contract grading. Mm-hmm. So students would individually contract with me for what elements of the class, what tasks they were going to do. Okay. So some of them could decide that they wanted to play a bunch of games um, and write up reports and kind of do playtesting in that way. Uh, and some students could watch uh, or listen to actual plays, um, which I didn't know how that was going to land because a lot of almost none of the students had any familiarity except for like the two hardcore critters and the and the adventure zone fan um so but a lot of them ended up and but they had a huge i was like you can watch whatever you want if you want recommendations here's my big list
2: yeah
1: um for the fall i'm about to send out the email i've sent out the survey email in fact i've got survey data on the other screen in front of me about like stuff uh, my students have are telling me about uh their preparation for class in the fall. But the thing that I'm going to point them to is KOLOC. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's challenging, right? I really want to, uh, I, I want there to be more innovation in this space in terms of, of not just the stories that are told, but how they're told. Yeah. Um. And when I, and, but when I, I beg people on Twitter, I say, Every self-promo Saturday, I'm like, I don't need to promote anything, but could you promote to me, like, something that you're doing that nobody else is doing, like, and tell me about it. And right now, like, what Hyper RPG is doing in a 16 by 16 garage
2: yeah.
1: on f- no money for f- 700 people a week is, is the thing yeah. um, as far as I'm concerned. Um and and plus it has you know now it has everybody trying to kill b Dave Walters, which you know is is never a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think he enjoys it a little too much, and Abria basically going back and forth in time from being like the prime mastermind and being this enormously heartbreaking and sympathetic character, which you know those are those are those two things are catnip for me yeah. um and so when I think about the possibilities of the form um and things my students won't find on their own that's where i'm sending them cuz i'm looking at the stats and i think about half of the students who've reported in so far have know the critical role exists yeah um you know they know dimension 20 exists they know the adventure zone exists some some of them are watching or listening to nadpod and dungeons and daddies right um and i i hope to have them do more because mm-hmm. in the the fall because it's the class that's entirely about actual play one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to make a master list of all of the actual plays we can possibly find and get as much information as we can, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to send them to watch the first 30 minutes of the first episode of as many actual plays as we can get them to do. There's only 15 of them, but uh, you know that 15 times four is is not an insignificant number slice yeah. of the pie, and have us start looking for things like you know. What's the stylistic choices that are being made in that first 30 minutes? You know, what's the, if it's a, it's a, if it's a video on demand, what is that, what's the overlay look like? If it's an audio thing, what other kinds of audio cues are they using? How much is it edited? And so that we can start to get some concrete uh, understanding of, of what the state of play is. And my hope is that as opposed to having the, all of us watch a 2 or 4 hour single episode which then becomes the question of representation like how do i make like find the one platonic ideal of the episode that can stand in for all of actual play and is hopefully representative of as many different kinds of people as possible at the table and 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 mm-hmm. okay i can si- if we get 60 slices of the pie yeah that gets us closer um you know to the kind of overwhelming breadth of of what's going on here yeah uh, but yeah I started I was driving uh to the airport before my conference, and I was literally using voice to text to list all of the possible shows that I could just think of off of the top of my head, and I got to like a good thirty, yeah, and I know that that's the tip of the iceberg that's just what I could think of while I was you know driving down the road
0: right, yeah, uh, so there's so my many.
1: hope is yeah, and my hope is is that. Because I do all this stuff in public, right? I tweet about it. I YouTube about it because I vlog every, um, every class mostly as a way of like – it's an active learning class. So if students aren't there,
2: yeah.
1: you kind of can't be like, here's what the lecture was. Like, no, yeah. no. This is a conversation. So let me recap it for you as best I can. It's not perfect. Um, but my hope is, is that people will see what we're doing and want to help and say, oh, you don't have on your Google sheet this show, and I can tell you about this show. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, that we can start to get a, a, a collective action moving us forward in our knowledge of, of what's going on out there. Yeah. Um, because because the, uh, the other alternative is to say only studio actual plays matter. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, when you think about a digital project or a book project, one of the first things you have to think about is scope. Um, and scope creep is, is a thing that as a digital humanist, I'm always kind of trying to warn people against, don't let a project get so big and so ambitious that you can't ever finish it, right. figure out a way to slice it off. And a very easy way, if I, if this was a dissertation and I needed to get it done in like a very specific amount of time, it would be like, okay, focus on the studio shows. There's only like five of them at yeah. this point. Um, there's not that many of them um, and you can, and you can get it done. And then you miss out on the entire ecosystem. Right. Well, yeah. all of the stuff that supports that.
0: And I think, too, there aren't that many studio shows, at least in my like instant knowledge, that are very diverse either. Uh,
1: yup. So yep. you miss a. You have put your finger on the crux of the problem. Yeah. I think Rivals is the only one. Um, and they're, of course, and, and, I don't and think Dimension 20. And, 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 and Dimension 20. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. No. that's, it's it's a re, like that's a b, and I mean I think you could say that the 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 by night, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, there might be a little bit. But Erica, yeah. when
1: when yeah, no, no, oh no, it's it's caveats galore, right? Yeah. Asterisk, 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 um, and it's also like oh, on the continuum of of representation,
2: yeah,
1: uh, they're yeah. they're doing they're doing better because the bars on the floor, <laughs> right. um. Which is, you know, which is the thing, right? Like that's the, that's the challenge is like the studio productions are the ones where, you know, I, I asked B. Dave when he was talking to my students, like, so tell me about the difference, if there is any, between the studio actual play and the Zoom actual play. Um, You know, why would you choose one over the other? Is one just always superior? And one of the things that he said you know, because he loves a good succinct soundbite, yeah. um, and I will cite him when I need to. Uh, you use Studio gives the best performance. Zoom gets the widest casting, so yeah. you can cast people you couldn't otherwise when you're on Zoom. But ideally, you get everybody in the same room, yeah. and so that's that's the real that's the real sticking point is. It's expensive to move to studio and with expense comes, you know, all kinds of under thinking about risk relation to capital, all that sort of stuff. So I, what we, I think what everybody's hoping is that, you know, because zoom is visible, um, those zoom shows that are on Twitch are visible that, that it can become a kind of incubator for people. And we see a little bit of this, um, of incubator of people who then jump over to the more established shows, but then it's still, it's still not for us by us. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm yeah. not qualified to talk about that further, but it's obviously something that even I can see is, is yeah. a challenge, right? It's a different, The difference between building something from the ground up and, and coming into something is, is very, very different. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how something like invitation to party on G four fares, right. um, and and changes and transforms um, over time. Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, the other question I want to ask you was the you said you you don't think that you could t- have a class and not talk about D anD D, and I'm curious is that just because of the history of it, because you have to talk about like how it started, or do you feel like it's just too overwhelming? that there's no way out to avoid it.
1: Well, I mean it's definitely like if a if a student has heard of role playing games, it's almost certainly that they play or have heard of D&D. Yeah. Um so there's that. I mean D&D is an enormous part of the zeitgeist it's only gotten bigger in the advent of stranger things and you know there might actually be a good dnd movie who knows <laughs> yeah. stranger things stranger things have happened uh literally um
0: stranger things i think uh, but- unless it was like a joke they are making vecna the new
1: i no, draft. i don't think that was a joke i <laughs> think that was real and i think that's hilarious yeah um but Right now, what it is, is all of the scholarship and all of the kind of explainers of what is an RPG um, that you would assign to students quite easily are kind of built on an assumption about D&D. Yeah. That, that you know D&D or that you're going to know about D&D. And so one of the things that Evan Turner and I have been thinking about... And, you know, it's really hilarious to be like, we need more YouTube content. There's something that's not <laughs> on YouTube. But it's true. We don't have the quick explainers that are system agnostic of features of role-playing games. Yeah, And that's also kind of what the... So the plan for the actual players book, um, the, first, the first wave of the drafting um, that I'm doing this summer is really, can I write an explainer of actual play and the world of actual play that is as close to system agnostic as possible mm-hmm. um, for a wider audience or or rather one that doesn't just talk about D D, yeah. uh, but also talks about other systems and other ways of thinking um i love 10 candles and i want to talk about the you know i want to talk about how kolak has its um Origins in ten candles, and then kids on bikes, and then kids on bikes being transformed for performance.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, so uh, that's kind of a personal goal, and then the the idea that I'm kind of pitching around to to different kind of a- what we call academic crossover publishers, people who are willing to put out a book that's both scholarly rigorous but written with everybody in mind like so it's it's a book for all of us um but my kind of first layer of peer review is to to send it to actual players so i was actually um you know talking to 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 b dave yesterday and being like he's like how can i help and i'm like you can help when i have the manuscript in my hand and i send it to you (laughs) you and you tell me what can't i see yeah that needs to be in this book and do you want to tell that to me in your own words, and have me like weave in a dialogue? How do we want to do this? But oh god, I just mercered. Um, <laughs> but but the but the idea the idea being that what I would love to have happen is for this book, which the working title is Actual Players, to actually have these kind of interludes of conversations with creators in the space where they talk back to the um, the stuff that I'm thinking about and the history that I'm starting to try to tell there's so much that we won't be able to tell yet between NDAs and we just don't have critical distance and things like that but for now what we can do is say this is what actual play is right now and yeah. this is how you watch it and this is how you think about it and this is where it came from and it came from a combination of you know the improv community and con actual play of you know both of both of which were phenomenon that has existed for decades um and now it's this thing and and here's how you watch it and here's the people who are involved and and here's how it you know kind of literally plays out um so it's it's been great to kind of imagine what the book is going to be because it is it has so such a clear sense of audience because right now that's the gap is we don't have anybody who's Trying to explain role-playing games to people who've never played a role-playing game and aren't using Dungeons & Dragons. Again, yeah. love Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> yeah. And Dungeons and, & and Dungeons and Dragons is, uh, is to tabletop role-playing games what Jane Austen is to the study of the 18th century novel, which is to say... It's 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 big and it's impactful and it's and it's the way you get butts in seats, yeah. right? Or you get people to buy something. There's a reason why Game Wizards sold extremely well for MIT Press, and it's because it's the literally the history of the making of Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Yeah,
1: um, it's it's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue with the idea that ah yes, these are the things that sell, um, and soon it will be Critical Role. Like there's a book that's being pitched to McFarland uh it's, it'll be the third book that touches on ac- scholarly on uh, actual play for a kind of scholarly hybrid audience hmm. all of which have been essay collections yeah. mcfarland is uh, for folks who don't know the um it is uh mcfarland and mit are the publishers for game studies okay. um in the kind of in this space yeah. Um, and so McFarland uh, does a little bit more fan stuff. MIT does a little bit more design stuff and history stuff as a general rule. So McFarland may very well publish in the next year a critical role book uh, yeah. of essays. Um, and uh, there was a fair amount of critical role in The Adventure Zone being discussed in the previous two books that came out from McFarland. I was in one of them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And so it's it's like, oh, right. We've only focused on the actual plays that are playing Dungeons and Dragons, um, yeah. and that's and that's a big absence of kind of the the story of the symbiotic relationship between the indie games mm-hmm. and performers. You know, right? So many of the very same people who are making doing the flagship stuff. You know, um, Bradley Mulligan, Matt Mercer, all those folks have. Close friendship ties to game designers in the indie circuit, and are also, you know, lending their talents and their time there. And that hasn't been discussed at all by anybody anywhere.
0: Yeah, and if you have time, I have one one last big question for you. Sure. Um, So, at least that I've seen, I haven't noticed. And I'll preface this by saying, Misfits and Magic on Dimension Twenty and the Seven on Dimension Twenty were like. Two of the best watching, listening experiences yes. that I ever had.
1: Misfits and Magic's was Magic was also an assigned uh viewing last yeah, fall. So, I
0: mean, yeah, okay. it's so good. But I just I was just gonna say, like I don't s and I I don't I'm not on Twitter all the time, but I don't just I just don't see you talk about Dimension Twenty as much. And so I'm curious if those things, um, if those two shows specifically or Dimension Twenty in general, um also have like a place in your heart. Oh, way. very much.
1: I think, I think the challenge with dimension 20, at least in terms of like talking about it a lot on Twitter, uh-huh. um, which is, is, is you don't like, you can't live tweet, right? It's not right. a communal yeah. experience. Um, it comes out when they drop, uh, episodes. It's, um, usually in the middle of still in the middle of my work day. Cause I think yeah, it's, it's like in the late, late
0: Wednesday. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, like I think I'm actually literally in a faculty meeting, and I assure you, I would rather be live tweeting <laughs> a new episode of Dimension Twenty anything yeah. than uh, than being in a faculty meeting. But one of them is a contractual obligation, right. and while I joke that live tweeting is a contractual obligation, it is not actually. Um, it's I've only made it part of my job. <laughs> but no, I mean I think um, Dimension Twenty is very much um, a case study that is that is on my mind um, yeah. in 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 part because. You know, it's one of the few things that survived the implosion of college humor. Brandley Mulligan was the only person they kept on payroll, I think, on the creative side. Um, And, of course, I could listen to Orion Black talk forever on basically any aspect of the production. (laughs) Right? Like, so when I think about the people that I really would love to talk to um, in this space and think about kind of the act of making it's orion um it's it's zachlem eubank um and malika from hyper rpg um it's uh it is uh danny carr the lore master the fan turn lore master for for critical role but it's these backstage labor folks yeah um that are doing the most interesting thinking about where stuff is going joe star um who i think now works for um uh, I think it's now officially Wizards cuz cuz uh D&D Beyond of course just as of today got yeah. acquired by uh uh in in a ha- what I hope is a happy marriage uh for my giant D&D Beyond cat count. But yeah, no, uh, Dimension yeah. 20 um is uh is not something that I tweet a lot about only because when I'm tweeting a lot about stuff it's usually because it's either something that has c- come up in terms of uh, you know, a live thing or something that I'm thinking about in terms of its structure. Uh, but no, Misfits and Magic was a kind of uh, a major set piece of last fall in part because it's, it's such an interesting meditation in this moment that we're in where people that are my age, that are Bria's age are, you know, thinking about, you know, okay, so Harry Potter was a big thing. Should it still be a big thing? How can it, how can we, how can we scavenge what's good from it um and and do that kind of work which i think is um really really thoughtful and of course for somebody who's who's thinking that there needs to be a class on how role-playing games grapple with education Mm. uh, and think about education yeah the seven and um and uh and uh because as a women's college grad, I love the seven, uh, um, yeah, it's, and, it's and and Misfits and Magic and Fantasy High are all kind of major um, parts of that. And of course, like the Dimension Twenty kind of larger universe of you know uh, is it? I think it's gonna. I think the story that my students and I this fall are going to be able to tell when we do this kind of network analysis is going to be like. That that's a major node in the network, right? Because there's Dimension 20 in all those shows, which are almost always reaching out and pulling in folks from from the larger space because it's this kind of because they do shorter runs and yeah. they and they vary the cast pretty wildly. And then you also have, you know, the fact that NADPO is directly connected, right? Yeah. Um mm-hmm through through cast members. Um and then also those kinds of other like one shot, you know, the one shot RPG uh network and things like that. That everything is interconnected, right? Yeah. Um and and a lot of it's a visible interconnectedness. Um but uh and then I think there are roots that grow in the dark uh, as well. But yeah, I think I'm I think the one of the reasons why I the other reason one of the reasons I don't talk about it as much is in comparison to um, hyper's colloc and even critical role at this point is i don't I also don't have the same direct contact uh, or connections um with the kind of with the teams yeah um in 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 those kinds of ways so it's it's interesting because, right, because in some ways Twitter, you're performing for the other viewers, right, right is a lot of what I'm doing. Um, but some of what I'm doing is indeed, like, I also have to be aware, like any other person tweeting under a particular hashtag, that uh, you will be perceived, right? Right. right. <laughs> um, and, and in the case of, of uh, the people who are tweeting about Kolok, those tweets, they're small enough that those tweets just show up on the stream. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I think that uh it's it's par- I think it's also partly that is is that um you know there are a few dimension 20 folks who are mutuals but nowhere near the kind of um interconnectedness as as in the other shows. Yeah. Um I do think a lot about you know as as my reach grows and I what what am I spending my time talking about publicly? One am I spending my time uh you know engaging with and and encouraging folks to watch um the other show that I do talk about when i whenever I catch up, which is usually once every it's every two weeks or so um I have my Saturday of the black dice society yeah um but yeah, I mean, I think it's the I think all of us you know are trying to figure out how to curate our consumption in, in, in different kinds of ways. For me, it's, it's with that added freight of, uh, what I, if I fail to notice something I, and I'm writing about this and I fail to notice something that's important, I've done an, I've intellectually failed. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's something that I'm like putting off for like summer Emily's problem (laughs) of, you know, you know that is the summer reading list right is yeah. like is doing the thing that i'm asking my students to do which is watch an episode of as many different actual plays as possible i'm also trying to be gen- gentle with myself to a certain extent about the idea of like i'm not going to vibe with everything i want to a- address everything with with care and attention yeah um and I think this this is bringing us all the way back to the beginning, right? <laughs> at what point am I in my viewing? Am I a fan? And at what point am I viewing? Am I a public intellectual doing public intellectual work? Yeah. And so it's an interesting challenge. Um, and I I have thought about the possibility of like, oh, I'll just live tweet the next thing I watch, and I'm like, that could go very poorly, <laughs> right? Like, because because what yeah. I don't want to do is 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 tweet about something. And and be negative. Right. I think that there's there's too many people watching, and nobody needs to get. No one needs me to dunk on them. Right. Um. Uh. And so, but I I'm I've been thinking about this a lot because the next task I have and the thing I have to do this month is I'm writing an uh, a an editorial introduction called that I'm titling State of Play for a cluster that's going to be online for post forty five contemporaries, which is Um, a kind of group of uh, academics who publish these kinds of idea clusters around Mm -hmm. things that have been produced after 1945, hence the name they've done like a special issue on BoJack Horseman, for example, and one on stranger things a few years ago. And so I'm do, I've edited one, I'm editing one on tabletop role-playing games and long form storytelling now. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to make as much, this a moment of representation of as many shows as possible um, to an audience that knows about none of them. Yeah. And so I both have to do the work of like explaining and justifying as well as the, like the broader, like here's all the things you could watch. And the easiest way to do the justification is to lean on critical role making $11 million in the most successful Kickstarter of all time, but it can't end there. Yeah. Um, And so that's the the delicate balance out balancing act, and we'll see in a month or two when this comes out, uh, whether I've succeeded or whether I have to keep writing and digging myself out of a big hole.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I wish you good luck with that because um, it's going to be a lot of work. But I'm I'm excited to see the finished product because I think it's it's super cool, and I think it's such an important thing for what we as a teacher at BG space are doing right now because um, it it's. You know, this is kind of the history in making for a lot of folks, um, and yeah. yeah, and it's a way of sort of, I think, too, like validating the thing that we're doing that some people are finding careers in, and other people are still searching for their their footing, right, in a very yeah. difficult and to this get is, into place.
1: I mean, and this is what criticism is supposed to do in its best form. It's not about hot takes and dunking. It's about saying. Look, pay attention. Here's what happens when you pay attention to something with, with a with an eye to making connections, with an eye to being to trying to see what was the intention behind the creators. Um, that's what criticism ought to do. Um, right. it, it so often has become something else, and I think there's a debate that we could have for another hour <laughs> and a half yeah. about. Um, about reviews and whether we should start reviewing actual plays as a way of making them more discoverable. I don't know if the what the answer to that is, but I can say that we do need to do this kind of work of of, of thoughtful, f- like intensive description. And I think that the best actual plays are the ones that you know can bear the weight of that kind of attention.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so we'll see how it turns out.
0: Yeah. For sure. Well, um, we have talked for an hour and a half, uh, which is awesome. I could continue talking to you. Uh, but for the sake of the episode, I will <laughs> uh, we'll end it there. But um, I do want to say, you know, just thank you so much. One, for coming on the show. Two, for all of your support towards the show. Um, it has always meant a lot to me. And, you know, uh, I'm super excited that uh, we got to have this conversation today.
1: It was so, so great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to reach out to us, check out the many options on the Anchor app or anchor.fm on your browser. You can also reach us at secretnerdpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you'd like, leave a review to help us grow this thing.